Hello, I'm Chris Biddle and welcome to this special end of season episode of Inside AgriTurf. Remember last New Year's Eve, as the strains of old Lang Syne rang out across the UK to the mark to the start of a new decade, many people were surely uttered good riddance to 2019. The country had endured a fractious general election in December in which traditional party politics took second place to Brexit and not only that, much of the country's farmland was underwater following rain of biblical proportions in November. So a new year, a new start, time to reset the wheels of commerce. Or so we thought. It was to be a period of short-lived optimism. January featured a very successful Llama Farm Machinery Show at the National Exhibition Centre, followed a couple of weeks later by that most social of shows, the Bigger Turf Management event at Harrogate. Little did we know that they would be the last show, exhibition, open day, demonstration, county show, village fake, or any old show of any note in 2020. Sales into the agri-turf industry had actually started to pick up and Mr Deer was on manoeuvres sacking dealers and replacing them with super dealers, nay, probably mega dealers. But in February, it all started to go pear-shaped. Having not remotely recovered from devastating and widespread flooding in November, three high-velocity storms, Cara, Dennis and Jorge, swept across the country, resulting in February being the wettest on record, disrupting work on the land and the planting of crops. As February gave way to March, we did not realise then that 2020 would result in the biggest restriction on people's movement since the Second World War. But there had been warning signs just a couple of days into 2020. Chinese health authorities are still working to identify the virus behind a pneumonia outbreak in the central city of Wuhan. According to authorities, the number of cases has increased to 44. Authorities say it is untrue and eight people were detained for spreading fake news online. Ah, the old fake news line. Not, it seems, the prerogative of the US president. But as we all know, the outbreak in Wuhan soon escalated into a full-blown epidemic and thence into an official pandemic. Soon international events were cancelled, including the giant Asia Forestry and Garden Machinery Show due to be held in the Chinese city of Ganzhou in mid-March. Optimistically, the organisers announced that the show was to be put back by two months and would now be staged in May. It wasn't. And there was similar optimism being displayed in the US after a first death occurred on the 28th of February due to COVID. New York was particularly badly hit in March, which did not prevent the US president addressing the nation on the 23rd of March. Ultimately, the goal is to ease the guidelines and open things up to very large sections of our country as we near the end of our historic battle with the invisible enemy. I said earlier today that I hope we can do this by Easter. I think that would be a great thing for our country and we're all working very hard to make that a reality. Here in the UK, the 23rd of March 2020, the day that Mr Trump was making that pronouncement, the day will live long in people's memory. Pressure had been building on the government to act and the instruction came loud and clear that evening. The time has now come for us all to do more. 
From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. People will only be allowed to leave their home for the following very limited purposes. Shopping for basic necessities as infrequently as possible. One form of exercise a day. Any medical need. And travelling to and from work, but only where this is absolutely necessary and cannot be done from home. So there, you've been told, and so began three months of widespread inertia. Except, of course, that people needed to eat, and those industries supporting UK food producers and the countryside infrastructure, and that included farm machinery dealers, dairy specialists, forestry equipment suppliers, and others who sold and serviced off-road vehicles, turf and maintenance equipment, in fact, virtually every company within the agriturf industry. And the industry comprises hundreds of independent, mostly family-owned companies who do not have legal or HR departments to cope with such emergencies. Fortunately, there are two well-established industry trade associations, one representing manufacturers and suppliers, the other dealers. And here was a situation in which they would play a pivotal and important role as would Service Dealer magazine, with which I have some association, who hosted regular online catch-ups with dealers and manufacturers. The key, as ever, was communication. As for myself, uh, fed up with watching endless repeats of Homes Under the Hammer or Bargain Hunt, I had decided that my lockdown learning would be to get to grips with podcast projection, and particularly the editing of audio recordings. We also had a new resource at hand, Zoom, another word hardly known six months ago. Armed with this newly acquired knowledge, uh, tooled up with Zoom, and ready or not, my first proper episode was to catch up with Ruth Bailey, CEO of the AEA, Agricultural Engineers Association, and Keith Christian, Director of BAGMA, the British Agricultural and Garden Machinery Association, to discuss their role since the 23rd of March. Now, this episode was recorded on the 21st of July, four months after Boris's stern instructions. So the timing was right for reflection. So first up, Ruth, on the AEA's role during the past four months. Yeah, it, it has all changed, as you said. The AEA early on took the decision to work to um, to its full capacity. We've all worked from home. We felt that all our services were were relevant and were deliverable. So so we managed to do that, you know, quite well. We've included extras. We regularly sent out our coronavirus bulletins. And we handled lots and lots of individual company inquiries. And actually, we've had lots of members giving feedback that they applauded what we did. Um, this was a time when they really, really needed us. They had specific questions. They needed to make sense of what was going on, just like everybody did. And the AEA stepped up to that challenge and, and members thanked us for doing so. so. So, yes, it's been very different. And then, of course, our stakeholder engagement, our, all our lines of communication with the rest of members of industry, all our alliances, they all started to kick in um, and it, I don't think it's until such a time as this that you actually know that they work or not and the con connections are in place. But one of the things we really found valuable was our, our the invitation that Service Dealer gave us to the industry 
call and that meeting every week. Um, both Theo and I found that very, very valuable. And so to Christian about his new mode of working. Yeah, from a business point of view, it's been quite interesting. I mean, I was actually at home isolated before the official lockdown. I do have an office at home. I am set up to do everything from home. What it's meant for me personally is that I haven't done any traveling in the, since early March, really. It does give you more time, but the time becomes more regulated. And, and that's what I found that you sort of come into a groundhog day type situation where you're starting at a certain time, having lunch, working on maybe a bit later in the evening, but a, a much more regulated nine to five top type of existence, which I've never been used to. So that was a bit of a shock. Very busy early on in all this, trying to gather information, answer people's questions, in a sense being quite reactive as a trade association and bearing in mind that we are a division within a bigger group that deals with independent retailers. So a lot of our spin-off from a retail point of view comes from that side of the business. As everybody knows, the high street and the independent retailers have been hit incredibly hard. What we found fairly early on, quite a lot of the garden machinery guys closed straight away and then reopened when they realized they were allowed to. Most of the agricultural machinery dealers stayed open. Everyone I've talked to and know about have been incredibly responsible with social distancing, looking after their staff, and also looking after their customers in the best way they could. What I found in the middle of all this, there was like a two-week lull, like, like the eye of the storm, really. And it went very quiet, which was a bit unnerving. And then we came out of the back end of that one. And I know Ruth was sort of slightly in the same position that we suddenly came back into a return to work type of mode, which was very strange for the garden machinery, ag machinery guys, because they never stopped. So that was the overall view of the trade associations. But what about the dealers themselves? Uh, in November, I caught up with Chris Gibson of GGM Grounds Care and asked him whether any of the different ways of working that had to be implemented during this year might well become permanent features of the business. Well, I think we, we prob probably one of the things that, that we, we, we were forced to do was, was lock the doors of the building <laughs> into, and, and restrict access to the showroom. <laughs> and, um, and, and that certainly proved a lot easier to deal with customers as they come and ring a doorbell and stop people wandering around the showroom. And the other thing is, I think we've actually ended up improving the layout of the showroom by, in order, by um, thinking about how we route people around that and, and socially distancing. It's actually made the, show, the showroom at Colm work better than it did before. So I asked Chris about the range of emotions that he'd had since he heard the original news about the lockdown. It's been a huge challenge. <laughs> um, I've, I think I've had every emotion from uh, enjoyment to, to, well, certainly start. I think the biggest one was fear on the, on the Monday night when Boris Johnson was yes. and then thinking, right, now how do I have to deal with this? And I, I remember coming into my office at home and thinking, right, I need to, I need to just, because everybody was, I think, sat there listening, well, what does this mean for us? And I thought, well, I need to make a call and send every, a note to all the staff, right, this is what I think we need to do tomorrow and whatever. And I, so I remember coming here and sitting here until 10 o'clock at night, writing an email to everybody saying, right, this is my take on it. This is what we're going to do. Yeah. And, then, and, and I think that was doing that. And I was very, at that point, and I think 
I was very confident that in the team that we had, and I wanted to make everybody in our team think, look, whatever this is, we're going into it as a team and we're going to together and we're coming out of it together. And I think the other emotion that I probably had is, is I wouldn't say enjoyment, but a huge pride yeah. in, in the people that work for us and some of the effort that they put in. And there's a number of people that have gone above and beyond. And, and finally, from those uncertain days in March, how has the season panned out for you? Well, we've just closed our numbers for the end oh. of October because we're October year end. Okay. And um, as, a, as a group, we've, we'll have a positive, we'll be positive by about in, in the small percentages, two, three percent positive in terms of overall turnover. And, and if we'd have been offered the result that we've, we've got last November, I think we'd have taken it and we'd have certainly taken it on the 23rd of March. Another dealer who was to reflect on a successful season was Anthony Deacon, MD of MKM Agriculture, who are a specialist dealer in the true sense of the word. The company focuses almost exclusively on the ATV market and are unique in the fact that they hold the main franchises for all four major Japanese brands, namely Honda, Kawasaki, Suzuki and Yamaha. So when we recorded an episode in the autumn, I asked Anthony to sum up his uh, season so far. It's been very busy and very good. So it's it's been above my expectations actually. And when when um, when COVID uh, came into play, um, we completely changed our tactic of how we were going to approach the market this year. Obviously, no shows. We went completely digital. We developed a new website. Yeah. And um, I think it's paid off for us. You know, we've. Business has been unbelievable. We've, we've overachieved. I don't know what the percentage is right now. At early days, we were very, very unsure what was going to happen. But you know, I feel so fortunate and so lucky that it's just gone the right direction for us. And we've just been fortunate to be in that industry where we, we couldn't stop. We didn't have to stop. We could continue to trade safely. Yeah. And, um, and the customers were, were still keen to spend the money with us. So another positive dealer story there from Anthony Deacon. And there is little doubt that uh, many dealers found ways to continue trading whilst adhering to all the restrictions enforced due to COVID. Another example, this time from the United States, was provided by Bob Clements when we spoke during an earlier episode. I asked Bob if he had any examples of dealers in the U.S. thinking outside the box. One of the things that I love about working with small business owners is they're as entrepreneurs, they're never short of ideas. Uh, the biggest thing is to try to, get, get, to keep them from con continuing to create ideas and actually take the good ideas and make the ideas work. But yeah, from everything again, and I go back to uh, just with the COVID thing, we had so many dealers that we worked with that were out of the box thinking. I have a dealership, they're down in Guthrie, Oklahoma. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna be meeting with them this afternoon to go over all their financials. Uh, but there's a great dealership, it's, it's an ag dealership, uh, but uh, they were about a million dollars behind their projection by the time they hit uh, April. And uh, because they, 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 people couldn't come in, they didn't get their open house done and things like this. And so we really, talk to them about 
like we're talking about, this a virtual open house where we did they did walk arounds and they did all of those things like this. They had six large, very expensive bailers. They're in a big hay area and 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 uh, they were going and they were all due. So they were the, the floor plan was done on them. So they were going to have to start paying interest on them. And their concern was is how are we going to move these things? So so again, uh, this. Ray Beck, he won't mind if I mention his name, but, uh, but Ray and his sons, so it's a family business, they started really focusing on how could we do a virtual open house? How could we walk people through? How could we give people prizes for being on our, our meetings and things like this? And so they worked with the manufacturers hand in hand and they literally created this virtual open house. If you were on this meeting that I had, this Zoom meeting as we're doing this walk around on this piece of equipment, you know, if you were on that, then you were registered to win prizes and things like this. And they ended up in a period of one month, they, they ended up a, a plus a million dollars over their projection. They did almost $2 million wow. worth of business in one month. Not only did they catch up the million, they added another million to it and they sold all of their bailers during that open house. And their sons were telling their dad, we need to order more bailers. He was convinced <laughs> they didn't need to order a lot more bailers. But, but, uh, but anyway, but I think that's a good example of where, you know, in the face of adversity, uh, th that's what I love about working with small business people. In the face of adversity, they are the most creative creatures in the world. They will find a way to make it work. And, and that would be just one example. Now, somebody who has extensive knowledge and experience of the U.S. market is David Withers. Uh, David started life as a demonstrator for Charterhouse Turf. He then joined Jacobson UK before moving to Ipswich, where he became MD of the joint Ransom Jacobson operation. In 2011, he was appointed president of Jacobson Worldwide, based at Charlotte, North Carolina. He returned to the UK and today runs Izeki UK and has recently returned to his roots demonstrating machines and producing videos. I wondered whether they had worked for him. Yeah, it's been, um, it's funny how these things go. We, we were literally, it was like March the 23rd, you know, Boris announced the, the, the lockdown. Uh, we furloughed staff on the 24th and um, phone stopped ringing, everything went dead. And uh, I said to my wife, how, how are we going to keep going? You know, we've got to keep the business going. How do we keep communicating? How do we keep talking? So he said, well, look, I'll do a virtual demo. I'll pretend that, you, you know, that there's a customer there in front of me. You film it and, uh, and we'll stick it on. The, Real you know, family the affair then. Yeah, it's just, it's in a paddock just, uh, you know, by a house. So, um, so we did the first one and, and I think, you know, I think they have got better. You know, I think I've done seven or eight of them now. I think I've getting better at them but even that first one you know we put it out there and we had orders we had really? people ringing up and said i've seen the video i want to buy one of them who's my nearest dealer really really proof and of I the pudding just hit a nerve that it was a way of having a demo at a time when you couldn't interact in a normal way so we've carried on doing them. The de you know, again, I, I mentioned earlier, we'd had a dealer survey and, uh, recently and, and asked our dealers, what do we do well, what do we do badly? And, and universally, they love the videos. Great. Um, and what I get a lot of is requests, oh, can you do the uh, TG6495? I could do it. Oh, can you do that? And so we're gradually working our way through. I've got another one I'll do this coming weekend. One of the most memorable episodes and, and one of the most downloaded also was my conversation with David Hart, uh, Managing Director of Kubota UK. 
Uh, and uh, one of the things we talked about was the challenges facing dealers and manufacturers when they were forced into seeking a new franchise. Yeah, that's a really good question because I've literally just come out of a meeting with all of our management team and area managers that cover um, sort of Scotland to make sure that we're supporting that new dealer properly. And and when I compare it to me joining um, Kubota after 28 years with another company, everything you touch and look at is different. And I think you don't really comprehend that until it's all sat in front of you and you, you can't even as strangely enough you know when i arrived here i couldn't after three months find where the dealer list was you know <laughs> um, whereas you know it was a shortcut on my screen you know on my pre- previous job but i think the dealer has to go through all that as well that the, the only thing thinking about that that i would add though it's a bit of a cliche, I know, and I've used it so many times, um, it's probably getting a bit boring, but a change is as good as a rest. Yes. And, and actually, as long as you've got the, the vigor and ambition to move forward with it, actually, it doesn't sort of seem like a massive problem. I think only if you've got a, um, people or you've got a bit of a temperament that's, that's saying, oh, I wish this hadn't happened, and now this is the consequence of it. It becomes a problem. But uh, I must admit with, with um, HRN as an example in Scotland, that they're anxious to you know, make sure that they move forward with us. So officially they start with us on the 1st of November. Yes. Um, and, um, oh, you know, a couple of days time, yeah. Yeah, we're going to make sure that, you know, they've got all of the things in place. And, it, and it's actually quite refreshing to, to have all of that energy sort of flowing around. Now, this episode was also memorable because barely an hour after we finished recording on a Friday, I received a press release regarding two multi-branch dealers who held both Agco and Kubota franchises. They were Chandler's and Lister Wilder, who had themselves come to an agreement to focus on just one of those brands. I rang David straight away for his comment on this eye-catching news and we agreed to record a new section on the following Monday for me to insert in the already recorded episode. Luckily, my newly acquired audio editing skills, or not, came in useful and the new segment was inserted seamlessly into a recording from the previous week. So here's David's take on that news. I would say it is a very complex situation there because... The situation is with Chandler's in that they have um, Kubota ground care. They don't actually have the ag um, business. Um, it's, so it's only one portion of our sort of um, business unit. Um, and then Lister Wilder have all three of our ground care, ag and construction divisions. And they will keep focusing on that so that they're not decoupling their Kubota agricultural business that that will stay with Lister Wilder. It came around, I guess, not so much because of us. I think because of Agco have, have never made it a secret that their Route 66 strategy is to try and separate their brands slightly. I think um, Lister Wilder realised that that's something that they had to do from an Agco point of view. Um, and then I think the what happened then was that, that they had a, a meeting with Chandler's, the way I understand it, to see, you know, what the opportunities were, you know, what perhaps Chandler's may have been doing, I guess. 
and then it got into a bigger conversation i think about well you know why don't we let the agco business go the agricultural business they call that but it's really the agco and associated franchises that they hold let that go to chandlers and then that leaves lister wilder to focus wholly on the um on the Kubota business when it came to issues of recruitment into the industry, Paul Hemingway, the president of the Institution of Agricultural Engineers, has some clear views on the lack of diversity. The challenge for us, obviously, is to get a more diverse intake, because we are still very stereotyped as, a, as, a, as an industry. From In terms of age or, or skill sets or what? Pretty well everywhere you look at it, but... But I think certainly in terms of ethnicity, in terms of it's a male-dominated industry, which is fine, but yes. everybody's got different ideas, haven't they? And I mean, I know from my JCB experience, we've taken a lot of girl apprentices on. And, you know, they're, they're tremendous. Along with fresh ideas, ask questions that, frankly, we wouldn't have thought of asking. And, and there they are, and, um, you know, giving it some, and it's great. And throughout the year, the topic of Brexit cropped up very regularly and also the likely impact on the farming community when subsidies were replaced over the coming years. Paul also was able to offer his experiences of the New Zealand model. I, I worked in New Zealand for a year. I did an exchange when I was at Harper Adams with a, a guy teaching at Lincoln College and it was, it was literally the year that the Labour government came in and David Longy, the Prime Minister, turned to the farmers and said, right, that's it, no more subsidies. Now, you either adjust to world market prices or you go out of business. And the result 30 years on today is that New Zealand agriculture is really lean. Yes. are more business focused. And they are a country, albeit a small country, you know, in population terms, it's the size of Wales, geographically the size of the UK, that you know, has a very efficient agriculture that, that people around the globe will look to and say, well, it can be done like this. Now, questions of recruitment often did crop up during the season. And here, Peter Arend, the president of BAGMA, the British Agricultural and Garden Machinery Association, reflected on gaining the attention of young people through greater emphasis on environmental issues. You know, I, I can certainly relate uh, back to my children, who's 12 and 14, and uh, my daughter being very engaged last year in, in like you say, those environmental issues, um, and certainly with my son, he was a little older, uh, carbon footprints and things like that. I think is very, very relevant to 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 farming operations and 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 really as um, as a dealer network, we're supplying machinery to suit their solutions, yes. and, and that will only ever be as things roll forward. Uh, a growing concern and a growing need that we have to respond to. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's as many different routes in as that we can try uh, and try new, interesting, uh, innovative um, ways of maybe trying to deliver that would, would really, I think, change people's mindset. 2020 has seen the decimation of shows and exhibitions and everybody is wondering when and in what form they might resume. So completing a trio of presidents, here's Les Malin, the president of the AEA, the Agricultural Engineers Association, with his view. I think what you're saying is, you know, it's fairly, you know, near the mark. Um, obviously, there's a number of events more to do with 
an outside bias, if you like, that people are looking to work in the early part of next year. For me, I'm struggling with it, to be honest with you. I just, I just think we're, we're, we're nowhere near out of this pandemic. We're just about to come into the autumn months now, and everybody's telling us to expect worse over the winter months. I'm very, very cautious at the, you know, whether anything's going to run in an internal view this side of the late spring at the mm. earliest. Mm. I, I'm really surprised. The problem is for, for us is how you do it with socially distancing, keeping your staff safe, keeping your, your, your customers safe, and actually making it a viable proposition because these things aren't cheap to run. You know, and if you're going to spend 30, 40, 50,000 pounds or whatever on the show, you need to make sure you're going to get the investment back. And if the numbers are going to be 50% of what they would normally be, every person's going to cost you twice as much money. That's going to take a lot of justifying justify to actually make that work. Over the past few years, one of the features of the lawnmower market has been the rise and rise in the popularity of robotic mowers, one of the areas in agriturf where robotics have gone mainstream. They have, as a machine, been around for over 20 years, but as Lincolnshire dealer Gavin Bird of Greenstripe Garden Machinery told me, the early models did little to instill confidence. I've been involved in robotics since since the concept, really, with the manufacturer that we're with, uh, brought them in in, in in 1997, I remember. And it was a completely solar machine. And I remember purchasing their first unit. And at the time, it was £2,000. Was it? Um, and as a, as a dealer, it was one of those situations where I kind of grasped it and thought, this is the future, this is the way we want to go. Bought it, installed it at home. Yes. Um, because you, you live on the premises, don't you? Yeah, well, where, where it, to be fair, it was at our old premises. So, so where oh. it was in a small garden and it was, it was, it was horrific. It just did, didn't perform at all. Um, it was quite futuristic and it was something more out of tomorrow's world than, than we see today. It was, a, it was a very, I mean, in fact, I've still got the machine and it's a very, very uh, unusual piece of equipment. Quite flimsy and quite, certainly not £2,000 worth, let's put it that way. Well, was this I'm the sure original I'd, turtle then? Yeah, it was, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I still only keep threatening myself to try and get it out and try and actually make it do what it was designed to do and then realise I haven't got the patience anymore to do it. But, but so I suppose we went in in 97 and I maybe persevered with that for maybe the first year um, and then really got quite disillusioned and thought, you know what, it's just not there yet. So that was over 20 years ago, but today, as development of robotic mowers has come on apace, they account for a significant slice of business for Gavin Bird and for many other dealers in the UK. All of which links into one of the biggest news stories of the year, the demise of a legendary company in the outdoor power equipment market. Briggs & Stratton is a company with a long, rich history. Over the years, we've made some legendary and dependable products that really are intended to bring power to people, get work done, and make their lives better. I'm Todd Teske, CEO of Briggs & Stratton. We're proud of our past, but we've been changing in a lot of different ways and are really excited about the future of our company. Optimistic words indeed. Uh, described as the world's largest producer of small engines, Briggs & Stratton had battled for years against the onward march of alternative power sources in the end, the company filed for bankruptcy in July and was subsequently bought by KPS Partners in a deal finalised in September, which also saw CEO Todd Teske and other company executives leave Briggs & Stratton. 
so it will be fascinating to see what steps the new owners take to restore the undoubted heritage in the brand to prevent it becoming perhaps another Kodak. Finally, in December, the most downloaded episode of the year was the opportunity to say a goodbye and thank you to Robin Lenny, Managing Director of Still GB, who retires at the end of the year. Robin provided an entertaining and frank account of his 30-year career, amongst which was this recollection of working as Finance Director with a previous MD, the late Peter Baker, who was known for his unconventional and sometimes maverick style. Well, I mean, Peter didn't have any formal education, but he was highly experienced and a very intelligent man. And although we're very different characters, there was, there was, a, there was a mutual respect and actually a, quite a deep fondness for each other, you know, that built up. I would be, I'd be making some sort of clever, intelligent suggestion to him about something and he would go like this and he would rub his tummy. And this was him saying, my gut feel was different from what you're saying. <laughs> he did that. He did that every now and then. So yes. gut feel was important, and he, of course, he had a lot of experience. Yes. Um, I would give him practical, quick financial information, and he wasn't used to that because his pre- my predecessor was one of these boring accountants that Peter would say, "What happens if the Deutsche Mark moves ten percent?" And he'd go away for uh, this was the way Peter would put it. He'd go away for a month and come back and say. If it, if it moves that much, there'll be a difference of £1,304.63. <laughs> he didn't get that from me. Um, he got quick calculations, you know, just on a piece of paper. Yes. And he, he loved to say to me, can you do me a fag packet? <laughs> you know, a fag packet calculation. Um, so <clears throat> it worked well. So there you are just how we are ever going to put 2020 into context uh, will not know for some time to come. After all, here we are just a few days before the end of the year and we are still being overtaken by events. I only started this podcast in July but have really enjoyed the experience. Thank you to all the guests who have contributed their thoughts and opinions. I'm sorry I could not include everyone on this roundup, so in addition to those you heard, I'd like to add my thanks to Martin Ricketson, Sarah Hay, Andrew Goodacre, Steve Gibbs, Stephen Haynes, Ken Brewster, and Kit Franklin. Goodness knows how the next few months will pan out, but what I do know is that those who work in the agriturf industry often fly under the radar of public recognition but they play a pivotal role in so many areas of life and they do so with good humour, a positive outlook, professionalism, an open-minded attitude, flair and teamwork. I already have an interesting schedule of guests lined up for the new year, so I'd like to wish everyone in this community a very happy Christmas, good health and a rapid return to an increasingly normal life in 2021. I'm Chris Biddle, thank you for joining me, and this is Inside AgriTurf. Music